What a piece of work is a man. Do you know where that, anyone know where that? Shakespeare, well done. What a cultured bunch. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculty. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world. The paragon of, the, of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Well, let's pray before we look at this question. What are we to make of human beings anyhow? Father in heaven, thank you that you've not left us to guess. You've not left us to be washed along by the most recent fads and opinions. But you speak to us those things that are true about us and yourself. Please help us, Father, to hear what you are saying about us, uh, us as individuals, us as your people and your creation. May your Holy Spirit come and make these few moments fruitful. In Jesus' name, amen. We had a lecturer when I was at Bible College um, called Bill Lawton. He was a, an eccentric character, and I use that as a compliment, but he was an unusual dude. And he used to like sort of um, showing us students that we weren't really as brilliant as we thought we were or as we knew we were. And I remember seeing him between my, uh, just going into my first, uh, last year of college with a friend, just coming back from the library. And we saw Bill and he said to us, what do you think is the big question that the Bible is trying to answer? That's a good question. What do you think? What is the big question that the 66 books brought together in the scriptures is answering? Well, I gave what I thought was a pretty good answer. Um, I, I said, I think it's talking to us about God. What is God like? But not just what is God like, but what is God like towards us? Um, I still think that's not a bad answer. <laughs> but Bill said, no. And so we said, what, are you, what question do you think it's answering, Bill? And he directed us to Psalm 8, to this question. What is mankind, or as it used to be described, what is man, what is man, that God should be mindful of us, human beings, that he should care? That was interesting. It's worth, I think there's a sense in which the Bible is answering that question. Uh, it's a question which, in a sense, you think, oh, we don't need to think about that, do we? We know what we are, do we? It's one of those questions that each culture has an answer for but often doesn't sort of exhibit or tease out. It's just assumed. And in so many of the debatable questions in our society, um, whether it be euthanasia or, or whatever else, deep within those questions are questions of what is it to be a human, really? And our culture has, as a generalisation, a very strong answer to that, um, which is quite different to the answer that Jesus would give which is one of the reasons we find ourselves in tension with our culture at times. I um, came home one night um, after a, a busy day at church a couple of years ago, uh, not here, when I was in Sydney, and I slumped down in front of the idiot box and flicked around for a few hours trying to find something worth watching and then came across one of those BBC cultured shows on world architecture. 
I hadn't yet burned down the church that I was at, so I didn't feel a great existential need to know about architecture. It was helpful later on. But this, I was just watching it for a few minutes. There was nothing else half worth watching. The man had one of those cultured Oxford or Cambridge accents. And um, he took you around the world, showing various magnificent bits of architecture from different cultures. And then he said, I want to show you the building that I think is the most perfect bit of human architecture ever. Hmm, I like a big claim. And he took us to this building, Hagia Sophia, which some of you have had the great pleasure of going to. In my one world jaunt, I went to Turkey just to see this building. I just happened to be passing by, and, uh, but it was, it was worth seeing. He said, Hagia Sophia, in what we call Istanbul now, he said, is the most perfect building because, he said, it perfectly expresses the central beliefs that the architects held. And it expresses them to us, so you feel them in the building. Hmm. He said it perfectly expresses the essential doctrine of Christianity. Now he's really got my attention. I love hearing what educated, well, intelligent, if not educated in these areas, think about Christianity. And here's, what he, here's his summary. It's a very interesting summary. He says the central doctrine that Christianity is teaching, that Hagia Sophia so beautifully embodies, is that humans are unbelievably small, but we are not insignificant. I thought that was a very interesting... I'm not sure if I'd want to say it's the central thing, but I do think it is part of the fruit that comes out of the whole God, Abraham, Moses, Jesus thing. That humans are very, very small, and the Bible will try at times to help you to feel that. But also, you're not insignificant. The one thing you aren't, according to Jesus and his cross, is you're not insignificant. And he thought it expressed it. That is, it was answering the question, what is a human? We're both small and should be humbled. And yet we're also glorious and worth the blood of the Son of God. And it's important to know this, otherwise you will mistreat humans. You'll mistreat yourself and you'll mistreat others. It is important that we know what it really is to be a human. What do we really need? What is essential and what is peripheral? Your culture has taught you something. And often we end up arguing with our culture out here or, or maybe succumbing to our culture because who doesn't? Where actually the real problem is much, much earlier on some of the basic, often unsaid uh, assumptions. Some of you who know something about motor cars, and you might have only learnt this by painful experience, will know that it, you need to know whether you drive a diesel or a petrol-powered car. Um, I've had a number of people quite close to me have the experience where they put the wrong fuel into the diesel. I was told after the 8 o'clock service, it's much better to put petrol in the diesel than diesel in the petrol. Apparently, that's an even more costly experience. And... Um, I won't tell you who it was, but someone in our family. Um, and these, you make this mistake when you're really tired and you can ill afford to have another experience that makes life difficult and expensive and makes you feel like a bit of a deal. But I was encouraged to find out how many people have done that, normally when they're tired and can ill afford to make the mistake. You need to know, is this a diesel or is this a petrol sort of engine? If you get that wrong, you ruin it. Now, you can, you can put the right fuel into the tank and still, over time, ruin a machine if you don't look after it, if you ignore 
the maker's instructions on how often the oil should be changed and things like that. So it really is important that you know what is this thing that I'm dealing with so I can know how I should deal with it, it's particularly when it's myself and those closest to us. What is man? Now this psalm, Psalm 8, puts us immediately into the context that raises this question existentially for people. It's not uncommon to meet people, and you may have had this moment, when you're either out in the wild countryside and you look up at the stars and you think, oh my goodness. Or you're reading a book that is explaining how many billions and billions of stars there are and how many gazillion light years we are across from each other. And that number just gets bigger and bigger. It seems every step forward we make in technology and in some theoretical questions, it just gets... But people have felt the reality of this for a long time. This psalm, as you heard... David, who was a shepherd before he became king, so he probably had spent a bit of time out you know, in the dark. He says this, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, right? the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? So he looks at it and thinks, my goodness. I don't know what he thought, was out, what they were, but he just knew there was something vast that makes him ask, what, what on earth Am I, are we, um, in all this? And yet he goes on and says, but you've you've made us just a little lower than the angels. Crowned us with glory and honour. So the Bible is, is more than capable of doing what many people today can't do, and that is to say, tiny, but glorious. Broken, but magnificent. So that's why we're looking at this question of what is it to be a human? And today we're just looking at really some of the foundations. We're going to look at three foundational things over the next three weeks, CBR, which is Canberra, um, and then we'll look at some specifics. What, what does the Bible say about work? What does the Bible say about you as a sexual creature? What does the Bible say about you know, where we're heading and other questions like that? But we'll do it around. So today we're looking at this business, um, humans in creation. Psalm 8 immediately puts us into a huge, huge context. There's a common enough thing said in, in mockery often by some people at like Christianity is, oh, it's also terribly anthropocentric. Right? It's so trivial. It goes on and on about humans. And the Bible does it. That is, it is possible to take something seriously without being madly focused on it inappropriately. The Bible starts with, well, let me, let's go back to it, because Psalm 8 is really based on the first chapter of the Bible. Listen to these majestic words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Magnificent words. So full of relevance to science and to philosophy and to anthropology. Uh, the Bible doesn't start off by talking about humans. The Bible is actually, you know, keeps on displacing humans and trying to humble humans in a way that is helpful. It's one of the reasons why we hate the book. Because it keeps on saying, it's ultimately not about you, God. And then he tells us that he made the entire cosmos. And then it talks about how God shapes the world to make it a place that he is pleased with. It was formless and void and empty. And the first three days, day one one to three, talk about God forming and structuring the world making differences like ocean and land and things like that. And then verses 4, 5, and 6 explain how God then fills the world that he has earlier 
constructed over those six days. And so then it gets in the end, it's sort of all this, all this sort of in readiness gets to day six. What does he make on day six? Two orders of being. He makes the animals on the land. And on day six, he also makes humans, which is lovely, I think, because it actually unites us with the animal kingdom. It says we're kind of, you know, it's not a separate day that humans are made. And we're made in the second half, after lunch, if you like, um, on the same day as the animals. And um, then humans are introduced. And they say that Shakespeare, and I, I must be true because my English teacher taught it to me, they say that Shakespeare's got a, an uncanny ability the first time a, a key character walks on stage that they say something or something is said and that defines the character, Right? And that's certainly what God does here in Genesis 1. He comes to the question, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, he's made the animals, it's all good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. So he, this is, gets our attention and there's something really significant. God has not done that before. There hasn't been a time where God, as it were, stops and, and ponders, right, here's what we're going to do. And the weirdness of here, it's speaking about let us make God in our image. Here is a book that is not fiercely monotheistic because there are some religions that are fiercely monotheistic, but is intensely uh, monotheistic, that you know, there's only one God, he made all things, unlike you know, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans and the Babylonians and the Norwegians and everything, where they're not the creators, they just find themselves in a, a prior existing universe. Here's a God who makes the universe, and there's only one. Uh, that's one of the big obsessions of that, the Old Testament. But here, in the very first chapter of this book, let us, who is he talking to? Well, some people think he's talking to the angels, but that can't be it because the angels can't make humans in our image because the angels are made of something completely different. Uh, many Jewish scholars over the years have just simply said, that's, we, don't, we don't know. And it's, that's a perfectly sensible thing, isn't it? It's much better to be agnostic about something than to come to a nice definite answer that's just wrong. It's better to leave space in the shelf and say, I'm not sure what's going on there than to fill it up with some nonsense. But of course, when you get to the Jesus thing, as you heard in the reading from Colossians, all things were made through him. Um, this, all things are made by him. And we were made for him. John opens up, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the end, the Bible, when it gets to write towards him, begins to answer the questions that are raised in the first chapter. This is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dialoguing amongst themselves about this next exciting step. Let us make mankind in our image. And then verse 27, which is the first bit of poetry in the Old Testament. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God created. So that, what do we need to know about ourselves and about your neighbour, your friends and those who annoy the guts out of you? Who are we? Well, the first thing is we are, let us make. 
Verse 27, so God created. You've been made by someone. You are a creature. You are a critter. That's who you are. It's very important that you remember that. Your society wants you to forget that. It wants you to pretend that you're self-made. Or, often behind that and worse than that is, you're just a winner in the evolutionary set of accidents. That's all you are. You're an insignificant ape from Africa who got lucky. And I was listening to some really clever people this week who are arguing exactly that. You want to know the reality of who you are? You're just part of the animal kingdom that got lucky. Partly because your ancestors were clever and partly because they were flippin' vicious and won. Pity helped on the Neanderthals. But no, no, this is saying, no, 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 you're not just a chance product of a mindless universe, which is what in the end our culture builds its beliefs on, even if it doesn't say it. The belief that we are chance products of a mindless universe. There is no purpose. It's just a happenstance. It says, no, no, no. Uh, You were made thoughtfully. You were invented by God. He's he's like Utzon, who had a brilliant plan. And then on it went to be built with a few dramas on the way. The Opera House. God thought... God invented us. He didn't have to. The world would have functioned perhaps without us, but he made us in his image. We are made, and friends, therefore we are valuable to him. Maybe you might get over it. You may have made things in the past that you get over. You enjoyed it for a little while, got tired of it, smashed it in a furious temper. We can know that God is not like that, but we are made by him and owned by him. One of the reasons that drives, and I know this as an ex-atheist and as one who's talked to many atheists and has read the writings of some of our most elite atheists, one of the reasons why the sort of the use of evolution as an explanation for everything is so popular is it takes God's hands off his universe. We can pretend that the universe is terra nullis. Or however you say that, not so good with Latin. Is it nullis or nullius? Just say it comforting. Terra nullis, of course. We play that game with the universe, and it's not. It and you are owned and made by God. What What else do we know about it? Well, it's going to say we're made male and female. Isn't it interesting? Three things the Bible says in in that one verse in 127 about humans. One of the three things that you're a sexual being. Uh, The Bible says, we know that from biology, don't we? Just about any cell from your body or any cell dug up, you know, in various fossilised things, we can tell if that's a male or a female. It doesn't have to tell us what gender it identifies with. Scientists will talk about, oh, we've dug up a woman you know, in the jungles of Borneo. Right? Every, there's only two cells in your body that, that do not have uh, male or female identifiers. And, and that's exactly what the Bible says. Male and female, it's very... We'll get to that. It uses this phrase, the image of God. Now, we can spend a lot of time on this. We won't. Some of you will know that that phrase was used in other cultures before the Bible used it, but it was used of one person only, the Pharaoh or the great king. He was said to be in some form or other in the image of God. The rest of you weren't, us weren't, but the Bible says all of us are in the image of God. We are made on day six. We're part of the animal kingdom. Or in Genesis 2, it says we're made from the dirt before God then breathes his breath into us. Here it says, yes, we're made on day six, 
But it fundamentally says you want to understand yourself. You need to understand yourself in relationship to God. I don't care who's got the biggest brain. It doesn't mean all that much in terms of actual intelligence, the size of the brain. There are a number of animals that have bigger brains than us. There are a number of animals that have more neurons in their brain space than us. Um, it's hard to know if you just look at the biology exactly what makes humans distinct. But we know what makes humans distinct because of the author. He says, you're in my image. There's something about humans that if you want to understand us at any deep level, we're made by God and there's something about you and us and we and the people that you deal with in life who are like God, who are in the image of God. Now, it seems to be the number of things that it picks up here is some people suggest it's the male and female thing, not suggesting that God is, you know, is sexually divided in that way, but just the, 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 the difference. I don't think it is, but the guy who came up with this theory, Karl Barth's no idiot, he suggests the image of God is the fact that there's male and female making up the oneness. So you've got the idea of the, the numerous in the oneness. I don't think so. Maybe. He might be right. But the image of God is immediately defined for us here, not left for us to guess, in verse 26. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule. Right? There's something about God who's introduced to us in this book, as you know, as a king, making statements and laws and the universe is, is built not after struggle and fight and warfare as all, all the gods around them believe, but just God is speaking a word and light comes into existence. And we are in his likeness. There's a sense in which we are to rule. We're put in the garden as the gardeners in chapter 2. He says in verse 28, Be fruitful and multiply. Increase your number. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea. Now this is a crazy thing to say. That humans, remember back then, you know, 1500 years before Jesus, we, we obviously are kind of, whether you like it or not, running, ruling, ruining the earth. We're obviously a pretty powerful species. But it wasn't all that obvious back then. We were weak. Any number of animals could kill us as soon as look at us crocodiles, lions, leopards, wolves, bears, ticks, all sorts of things could kill us. And yet way back there it says, no, humans are, are called on to rule. Now, sometimes you'll know that actually the strange thing was the man, the ecologist who made this argument first that gets echoed by all sorts of people, um, that Christians, the Bible, Genesis 1 is the reason for the ecological disaster in the world, which is so foolish. It doesn't explain, for example, why in the USSR, which was deeply atheistic, are some of the worst ecological disasters you'll see. They just did shocking things. But the idea, oh, it's, it's because it said the human should rule, that's, that's why people have gone and done all this nasty stuff as if. Right? It's not, that's not what, what, why we did dumb stuff. All sorts of cultures have done destructive stuff. And it shows a complete misunderstanding of rule, doesn't it? It's a bit like when people look at the word, as we talked about in different contexts, when the Bible says that in chapter 2, woman is made as the helper. Oh, that's a typical patriarchal rubbish that we expect in this dirty old book. Um, no, no, no. Read the context. Who is the person most often called helper in the Bible? God. You are never called God's helper. No matter what your granny said to you about you being God's little helper when you set the table. Right? No, no, no. You don't help God. He helps us. To be someone's helper when you see it from God, is not a mark of weakness and lowliness. It's a, it's a mark of the need of the other person and the capacity of the helper. Right. Same with this rule. What does it mean to rule? Right. 
It means to be as the great ruler of all Jesus Christ. It means to care. It's to be a shepherd. That's what it is. So to rule is a position of responsibility. Yes, authority. But responsibility to care. The idea that rule and authority means you can just throw your weight around and harm people is a sinful, twisted, perverted view of rule. The Bible is not selling that. But there's something about humans that we are to care for, that we are the gardeners, it says in chapter 2. Whose garden is it? It's his garden. That's why Christians are concerned about the environment. Not because some frog is especially cute or something like that. It's not about cuteness and niceness and sweet. It's because it belongs to somebody else. He made it. And we are called on to care and to rule like God rules and cares. We're created. We're rulers. Then notice immediately God speaks to humans in a way that he doesn't talk. He does give commands once earlier here to, to animals to reproduce. But here he has quite a conversation with them. Be fruitful, increase in number, rule over the fish of the earth. Verse 29, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth. They will be your food. All the beasts, he says, there's a few instructions. So what you see immediately is with humans, God enters into a discussion with them. God speaks to us. Now, Adam doesn't say anything here. He does, you know, we don't hear from him until chapter 3. But it's important to see that from the very beginning, humans are made for discussion and dialogue with God. Those of you who have done a little bit of philosophy or theology will know that one of the areas people get jittery with is the question of how can a human being's language be any use in describing something so big? They use the word infinite, which isn't a biblical way of looking at things, but something as big and holy and eternal as God. Isn't our language useless for that, to, to speak like that? It's hard enough for our language to convey all sorts of things. But no, because we were designed as God's speech partner. So speech is not just something that humans have come to accidentally through a number of you know, evolutionary leaps and steps. But we were designed as speaking creatures and listening creatures. We are his speech partner. Verse 29 speaks of God providing for us. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth, every tree that has fruit and seed in it, etc. It will be yours for food. Uh, this tells us a number of things, friends. It's, it, this is a complete reversal of all the religions around Israel. Gosh, we have very little idea sometimes how weird and wonderful Christianity really is. The common view in the ancient world all around Israel, much bigger, much, in a sense, much more cultured groups than them, was that humans were made to serve God by providing food. We're there to, to look after God, as it were. Again, as so often the Bible said, no, completely wrong. God will provide you for food, you with food. He will, he will look after you. And also tells us that we are dependent. Uh, people often want to be independent from God. They'll speak about that. They'll, they should get autonomy and things like that. No, no, no. You are a dependent being. It's been funny having conversations. Men are particularly silly in this area. They don't like the idea of being dependent on God. They want to be independent. While they take their medicine for high blood pressure and stuff like that. You know, we're massively dependent while they insist on drinking God's water. If you want to be independent from God, then do it with some integrity. Don't drink his water. Don't breathe his air. Stop eating his mangoes. Right? <laughs> do it with some integrity. Right? We're, all, we're dependent and, and it's annoying sometimes. Can you imagine how much better life would be if you never had to go to the toilet? Right? 
Alice and I have been watching this program alone. We just came in at Series 7. It's quite fun. And one of the things they never talk about is, what are these guys doing at the bathroom? Now, I don't want to see graphic pictures. But, you know, they're out in the wilderness for 100 days in one place. It's a, it's a question. They don't even have a passing reference. I think it's you know, just educationally. But we are made so we're constantly dependent on things. Now, God could have made you differently. But he will provide for your needs. But I think that very fact of our physicality reminds us we are highly dependent creatures on each other. Those of us who live in the city, most of all, aren't we? We learnt that, didn't we, a little bit in COVID. If the truck drivers go on strike or can't do their work for three days, we're all starving to death. Well, pretty much, pretty much. many of us are, right? The farmers are okay. We are utterly dependent on each other. We're de- and God provides for us. And in the end, verse 31, God looks at the whole thing. He said, he said about various stages when he made light and when he separated the seas from the oceans, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Again, this is a thing which is not there in the other ancient accounts where the earth is fundamentally an evil place. It's an evil goddess cut in half and turned inside out. So you're living in the, in the, on the body of a wicked goddess. And the Bible comes and says, no, it's rubbish. You're living in the world that God made and it's good. The trees are good, the water is good, the land is good, the animals are good, the air is good, you're good. When it makes us, the whole thing is complete. God says in verse 31, he looked at it and it was very good. And we need to stop and embrace that, friends. Before the Bible talks about the sad decay and degradation that's happened to humans, it notes and underlines the fact that you are fundamentally, we are fundamentally a beautiful, well-made, gorgeous creature full of all sorts of capacities to do good to each other and to to the world. We're also called on to rest. We'll look at that when we do work. We are, in chapter 2, amphibious creatures. We're bodies made of dirt, breath from God. That's who we are. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We are really a wonderful piece of work, aren't we? And that's picked up for us in Psalm 139. Uh, We looked at this at our Bible study group on Friday night and one of the ladies in our group said this is her favourite psalm. And it's got all sorts of treasures in it. Before we get to the part I want to share with you, it's one thing to hear about humans in theory. That's that's good, that's interesting. Forms an important backdrop, foundation. Psalm 139 is Psalm 8, Genesis 1, put into very personal terms for us. Listen to what he Again, this is David writing. This isn't about God created all this. this is, listen to what he says. Psalm 139, verse 13. For, speaking to God. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. Every one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. So he goes to sort of the universal question of the creation of humans. This is after the fall and sin has entered. And he speaks of his own relationship to God. This is his most primary relationship. This is why sin is so awful. If you can mistreat God, (laughs) woe betide anyone near you who gets in your way. And we mistreat God by simply de-godding him. 
living in his world as if it's not his, glorying in my own ability without just being deeply thankful and humble. Here he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God knit me together in my mother's womb. We can describe some of the biological processes, but basically it's God at work. It's God at work through the world that he's made. And worth going home, perhaps standing in front of the mirror, naked if you like, and saying, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Because you are. You're, you're, a piece of, you're, you're an extraordinary piece of work. Right? Your kidneys, your liver, your pancreas, you are an amazing piece of work. And you ought to, it doesn't honour God by us constantly speaking badly of ourselves. Right? He doesn't make rubbish, God. He knit us together. So we are precious and we are valuable. And that's really the root of so much that is good about Christian or Christianized culture. Let me read you a piece from the US Declaration of Independence, which many of us know a little bit better than we know our own constitution because, hey, we get educated by the movies. This is the beginning of the US Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Everyone knows this is true. Here it is. That all men, as humans, all men are created equal. Have you got any idea how how self-evidently false that is? They're not created equal at all. Well, if there's no God and he's not... if, If you just look at humans, we're not equal. I'm better than many of you in many areas. And you are much better than me in many areas. There are all sorts of ways in which we give people scholarships to schools and other things because they're better. You get more pay because you're allegedly better. right? All sorts of things because you know, we're better. It's just not true that we're equal. Well, it's not if you just look at it as if there's no God, as if being made in the image of God is not the essential reality of humans, whatever it might mean. Right? It says something very deep about all people. These guys, not all of them were Christians, many of them were, but all of them were brought up on that deeply Christian understanding that the world is made by God. It is self-evident that all people are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That is, a human right, my friends who are thoughtful atheists, they think you get a human right when the government gives it to you. So certain things are human rights because the government has changed the law. That is just so flabby and pathetic. It's like a human being without bones. It can't work. The reason why we fought, for example, the reason why Christians fought so hard at such expense to get rid of slavery, and brothers and sisters, we've done that twice in history. Once, a couple of hundred years ago, in Europe, and once at the end of the Roman Empire, when the Christians argued then for the abolition of slavery. They are the only two times in human history when slavery has been abolished. We'll sometimes get blamed for it, but without you, you remove the Jesus thing and the understanding about what, what, that human beings are made by God and all have these rights. Right? Slavery is the most obvious thing in the world. You read the great works of people like Aristotle and all the great Roman ethicists and the Greek, they all knew that some people are born to be slaves, that we're not equal. 
women are certainly not equal to men. Right? That, that whole notion. Now, we know that almost every human institution and many of us who are men are sexist. We understand that. That's how it seems to work out. Um, I'm not pretending to be Mr. S Mr. Super Smooth Feminist, but I think you can look at history and think that's how it does work out. But the notion that women and men are equal, you won't find that. You will not find that in the, in the highest of Greek and Roman ethicists. We've got a letter from a Roman man who's in Egypt back to his wife in Rome, and she obviously loves, he obviously loves her and is missing her, and she's pregnant. And he just says in passing, if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, dispose of her. We probably wouldn't think that's a good thing to do. But brothers and sisters, that was the norm. And a number of ethicists have said it was the Jesus thing. Because here's what they're saying. Why do humans have human rights? Because God made them. And they have their inalienable, that is, they, they deeply belong to people. That's what you get when you take the Bible seriously. Now, a number of, of atheist ethicists are now willing to admit this. There's an extraordinary man called Jürgen Habermas, an atheist himself, but who's unflinchingly clear that his love of human rights and most of his atheist colleagues believe in human rights is baseless, utterly baseless. He says it comes through to the Jewish concern for justice and the Christian concern for love. You remove that basis that we are made by God, right? in his image, all of us, whether you're born with massive disabilities or whether you get disabilities through accidents or whatever varying nature, it does not matter. We are all equal because we're made by God, knit together in our mother's womb, and we have certain inalienable rights, and that should be enjoyed. And that's why Christians are not, you know, take abortion seriously. I don't want to go on about it here because in a room this big, I'm sure we've got a number of people who have been personally involved in abortion. But that's a human inside the mother's womb. If it's a human, it has rights. Not about whether it can survive or not. Or it, blah, blah, blah. It, is it a human? That's the issue. And it is from the moment the sperm hits the egg. Therefore, it has certain rights. And it's to be celebrated. Lastly, friends, to go to Colossians 1, the passage that was read, um, is one of a number of parts in the New Testament where it speaks about the image of God and it doesn't talk about you and me. It talks about him, the one who actually made all things. Some people think, and people who I respect, but I think that, that when humans sinned, as we'll look at next week, how when the dignified, glorious creature got badly broken, we, we cease to be in the image of God. That can't be true because in Genesis 9, the reason why killing humans is serious is because we are in the image of God. And then James 4, we are described as being in the image of God, which is why you shouldn't slander each other. I shouldn't, we shouldn't slander each other. But if you want to know what does it mean to, to be in the image of God, the New Testament consistently takes us here. The Son, speaking of the Son of God, the Son is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what an unbroken, undamaged image of God looks like? Jesus. The firstborn over creation... In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. Anything that's a thing, he is before it, and it was made for him. And he is the image of the invisible God. That is what God wants to turn us into, healthy 
humans. And where our culture disagrees with God, it is poisoning us as humans. It'll have interesting arguments, but our culture works on the basis that we are chance products of a mindless universe. You can talk with someone, as, as many of you do, who really don't share the Christian view at all, and in all sorts of areas of ethics you'll seem to agree. That is where our culture has stolen the Christian roof while it thinks it can destroy the foundations and the, and the, and the, the, um, the walls. And we sometimes need to show them that. And increasingly atheistic philosophers are facing this fact that they've got stolen values that don't grow out of their essential beliefs. But at times our culture will, will tell us that we're, doing, we're being harmful. We need to be willing to go back and check the scriptures. And I'm hoping that over the next 10 weeks or so when we're looking at this, you, if you find yourself disagreeing with me on something or disagreeing with Andrew or whoever else speaks... Please don't go, oh, that's, in, that's interesting, that's Ian's view. If that's all you're getting from me, please come and correct me because I'm poisoning people. If all you're getting is my opinion as a 60-something-year-old white boy, right, etc., etc., all that sort of nonsense we do, if you love your neighbour, come and talk to me. Don't let me mislead. And I'd, I'd rather get it right before Judgment Day, Franks, than, than turning up to God and saying, oh, you taught my people your little opinions, did you, Ian? Well done, right? I do hope that over the next few weeks you'll listen carefully to what the scriptures say. And if you're not convinced on some of the specifics, show enough interest in the truth to, to argue politely and in a friendly way with people who are teaching. Either that or please write to the bishop and get us sacked. Because it's got to be what does God say. Right? Um, be careful, brothers and sisters, of just assuming, oh, well, that's just what they think. Really? I'll bet at that point you're saying exactly what the culture says. Right? Uh, everyone else is mass-produced except me. That's our general nonsense. Well, by way of conclusion, friends, Marilyn Robinson, who's a very fine writer, says this. If Christianity is anything, it is an anthropology. That is an understanding of humans. It tells us a story about what it is to be a human. I think she's right. The Bible is, starts with, in the beginning, God... But then in the midst of the story of God's interaction with us, it will tell you about what it means to be human. Right? What parts of what you assume to be you really need to be laid aside? What needs to be added and embraced? If Christianity is anything, she says, it's an anthropology. It tells us a story of what it means to be human. That's what God does. And I hope you'll be able to say with King David, which is the way of wisdom, and it's certainly the way Jesus lived, because he is a man who constantly submitted himself to the Scriptures. Listen to this lovely verse again. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. How precious to me are your thoughts. That's the question, brother. He, he is your creator. He values you enormously. He has beautiful and great plans in shaping you and remaking you into the image of his son, Jesus, to become more and more like God and to believe what God says. And to sing as we do sing sometimes, I am who you say I am. Right? That's the way of wisdom. It's the way of humility. It's the way of glory. Right? To, be, to enjoy the wonderful creature that God has designed us to be. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, thank you that you brought this universe into being. We know you didn't have to. We thank you that you did. And we thank you for this amazing world that you have built and for our little part in it. 
Help us, Lord, in these next few weeks to understand what you want to say to us about being fully, gloriously human, even though we are bent and broken. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, who wins for us reconciliation and who by his spirit is transforming us day by day uh, to be like him. Help us, Lord, to learn things in our minds and our hearts that will transform us and make us more Christ-like. In Jesus' name, amen.